This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for June 16th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, cleaning up the night skies. As part of a special issue on light pollution, I talk with researcher Stefan Vollner about why light pollution is actually pretty difficult to measure and how efforts to coordinate between disciplines could help darken the nights. Also on this week's show, a mental health first aid course. Azmi Ahmed, who wrote a working life essay in the career section, joins us to discuss steps for supporting mental health in the day-to-day and in crisis. This week in science, we have a special issue on light pollution. The special section examines the effects of light pollution on the natural world, on human health, and the night sky. We discuss how the level of light pollution can be measured and what we can do about it. As part of the section, Stefan Wellner and colleagues wrote a review on how to measure light pollution, and it's really not as easy as you might think. Hi, Stefan. Hi. Hi, Sarah. I'm glad you're here on the podcast. So why do I think it's easy to measure light pollution? Oh, because I can see light with my eyes, right? I guess that's... <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But apparently, that's not how you do it. So what makes it so difficult to measure light pollution with the tools that we have? I mean, it starts with the term of light pollution, yeah? If I ask 10 different scientists from different fields who work in light pollution, everybody can see and measure light pollution differently. For example, I'm an astronomer. I know that light pollution affects the night sky. I can measure the increased night sky brightness, for example. That's no problem. But an ecologist, for example, has totally different needs. He wants to take a look at animals, at the environment, at light pollution levels on the ground, for example. And this goes on and on. For every research area, light pollution is different and is measured differently. So there's no one number. We can say light pollution has gone up by 50% because it matters what you're looking at what part of light pollution you care about, like how you would measure it. 
Exactly, that's it. So the completely different values we hear at the moment can be ground-based, they can be space-borne or by space-borne instruments, for example. Of course, and then ground-based measurements, for example, are very locally. Uh, if I am situated in, in, in one country or in another, I only get the night sky brightness or one animal at one time. Satellites, of course, are much larger scaled. I can retrieve the signals from whole countries, whole cities, for example. But yeah, all measurements have advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. So can we say, though, with certainty that light pollution has been increasing over, say, the last century? We can say this 100% because it doesn't matter which measurement technique I'm using, we can see in the long-term development that it is, in fact, increasing, yes. And what are the main sources or causes of light pollution? We can misuse light, we can misdirect it, we can over-illuminate surfaces, for example. And every time light is missing the surface it should illuminate, it is propagated to the environment. And this is what we then call light pollution. Yeah. You know, and light pollution, you know, it does have these many different impacts. Like for me, as someone who lives in the suburbs, I cannot see the stars. I mean, I can see a few. Yeah. And my neighbor has a really bright security light. So every time I go outside at night, it's just blinding. Uh, great. Like those are <laughs> the personal impacts. But, you know, we also know that birds have trouble migrating when lights are really bright. So there's ecological impacts. What else are we, do we have to worry about with light pollution? I mean, every organism on this planet is reacting to light pollution. Yeah? If we talk about animals, if we talk about plants, or if we talk about us humans, in fact, we know that light pollution is causing human health issues. And this is why, in fact, I think, in my perspective, that light pollution is one of the greatest challenges we are facing at the moment in environmental issues at all. It affects all organisms on our planet. What are the steps that we need to take to make it easier to measure light pollution? You know, what, what can be done to kind of get a handle on the size of this problem? One of the reasons why it is so difficult to measure light pollution is, of course, that we also have a lot of devices available. We have different research areas. Everybody is using its own device and all fulfill their needs, of course, all are needed. Yeah? We cannot neglect any kind of device which is available at the moment. But we need to come together, all research areas, all technicians, for example, who built those instruments. We have to come together and to think, what do we really need in the future for measuring light pollution? Which parameters do we need? Can we maybe summarize some of the parameters in between research areas to fulfill the needs of more than only one research area? Our greatest problems we have also is that each night is different for light pollution. For example, if I stand in the field and measure the night sky, what I do all the time in my work, yeah, I not only measure the night sky, I always measure the atmosphere, which is in between. And the atmosphere can differ very, very much and very rapidly. One night could not be comparable to the other one because the atmosphere is in between. So we have to focus not only to collect light data, but also air data. So in the future, if we, for example, want to establish light monitoring networks, we have to be sure to also collect air quality measurements, to really connect atmosphere to night sky brightness levels, for example. Atmosphere is also very important to ecological light pollution. So that's all factors which we will have to face in the future to really have qualitative research in the future. This is pollution. It hurts animals, it hurts humans, it can waste energy, it can be bad for astronomy. 
But on the plus side, light doesn't accumulate in the environment like carbon or mercury. What are some of the approaches that can be done to decrease light pollution? I think the greatest difference between air and light pollution is that light pollution could be only a click away. If we switch off, of course, those things which we don't need in the night. In urban management, artificial light at night is used for security. It is used for orientation. And if we have lights which do not fulfill this advertisements, for example, in the middle of the night, we have to ask ourselves, is it really needed? Can I switch it off? In fact, and if I have lights which I need at night, I have to make sure that it only illuminates the surfaces which I need in the right intensity and whenever I need it. And if I ensure those very easy points, in my opinion, I can ensure that I mitigate light pollution to the highest possible extent. Now, are there technologies as well as regulations that can help with this? I mean, many countries world, worldwide do have laws regarding light pollution already, especially here in Europe. I can at least say five or six countries who already have really laws. There are many countries who have standards regarding light pollution and light pollution mitigation. I think overall, globally, we are still in the need of much more legal foundations regarding light pollution, not only from the ground, but satellites in the future can also cause light pollution from above. And these are all together really great problems, which we have to face in the, in the next one or two decades. And like I said, globally, we need to work more together and more successfully on such legal foundations, of course. Yeah, better coordination for sure. Yeah, exactly. So Stefan, what captured your attention? Why is this issue something that you write on and give talks about? About light pollution, you mean? In, in, in general. Yeah. As I said, I'm an ast astronomer and I started in a completely different field in astronomy. I started in cosmology. In fact, uh, I wanted to always find the, the form of our universe. And then I became aware of this problem when I was in my hometown looking at the not so starry night sky and thought, what, what is available on the night sky? What can I see? What can not I see where I live? And then I, I traveled in my country throughout the Alps, throughout the mountains, and, you know, the starry night sky was completely different. I was able to see the Milky Way. I was able to see so many objects, which I didn't know until then. And from the moment on, I realized it's not only a problem of disappearing celestial objects. It's also a problem for the organisms on this planet, for flora and fauna, for human health. I think this was one of the, of the things when I realized I have to attack this. I want to take care of light pollution in the future. Then I started with measuring. Then I started to also model light pollution, make predictions, for example. And since then, I know I, this is the field I want to not only make research in, but also make some kind of activism to mitigate it in the future. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thank you for the invitation, Sarah. Thank you. Sure. Stefan Wallner is a researcher at the Slovak Academy of Sciences. You can find a link to his review article and more from the special issue at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for some first aid for your mental well-being. Listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. 
When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Every week, science publishes a working life essay from the pen or a computer of a working scientist. It's about sharing personal stories that others working at the bench in the field or in the classroom can learn from or maybe just recognize their own experience in. This week, Asmi Ahmed wrote about his experience taking a mental health first aid course. Hi, Asmi. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Sure. This is great. You know, this really did catch my eye because when I saw the title, it's not something I've heard of before, but I've definitely heard about the trials and tribulations of grad students and postdocs dealing with moving away, working long hours, so many things. So what drew your interest specifically to, you know, taking a course like this, taking a class like this? It definitely drew my interest as part of general advocacy efforts that I was involved in advocating for mental health, as you said, generally in graduate schools and specifically, I would say even postdoc positions can be very isolating in their natures. And I'm not, you know, a stranger to these isolating positions. When I moved and have lived by myself since undergraduate, graduate school, and then postdoc, it's was pretty much a different city each time, having to start over again. Um, And it can be stressful specifically in a postdoc because you don't have any of that community for like classes, um, large groups of people or activities. And then compounded with the effects of COVID had and being, you know, quarantined, it really hit a lot of people and they become isolated. They kind of bury themselves into their work and they don't really reach out to people and talk to people. So I was kind of drew to advocacy efforts in general, and this kind of started even before coming for my postdoc position. I was working with STEM advocacy and outreach and just helping out whatever community I'm part of, because I knew that that helps the community, but it also helps me deal with, you know, what I have going on. And then there is a office here called Being Well at Yale, which offers meditation, mental health and diet courses and stuff like that for well-being. They reached out so that I can distribute that information and have people access that course. And that's when I saw it and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And, you know, if I felt like I wanted to be a better advocate and an advocacy coordinator for my community, I would have, I should be taking this course. So I realized what it is about. That's really interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people know first aid for whatever, snake bite. Yeah. (laughs) Or a lab accident. But, you know, mental health stuff comes up all the time in our day to day lives and in crises. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great point that you bring up the physical first aid. So one of the most common one is CPR, which a lot of us train on and, and it's very common out there. And this is kind of one of the things that the organizers of this mental health first aid organization is trying to make it as common as CPR, basically, but it's for the mental well being. The course itself, Without getting too technical, you know, it's a full day's worth of material that goes over how to identify when other people might be going through a crisis and how can you be basically the first aider there that can help them go through maybe the initial steps so that they can actually end up seeking professional help. So the course is really designed not for you to become a professional or to diagnose anyone. And it emphasizes that, you know, you are not able to diagnose or characterize or anything like that. And that's not your job. Your job is just to tell if 
you know, be vigilant of your colleagues and in your environment. And if someone is experiencing symptoms of mental challenges and substance abuse and stuff like that, that you're able to recognize that, oh, this person may need to get professional help. Similar to CPR, you just provide a little bit of immediate relief that can get them to the point of where the professional help can come in and actually have long-term help for them. What were some of the day-to-day lessons that you took away from this training? Besides recognizing is how do you approach someone? How do you talk to them about if they are going through a crisis? Oh, yeah. Because that's, you know, something that definitely comes up with first aid. You're like, I know first aid. I'm going to help you immobilize your broken arm, right? Yeah, exactly. But how do you how do you get to that point with someone who may be, you know, depressed or something else is going on? Like, how do you how do you broach the topic? It's not as obvious. One of the things is also to not have that stigma about asking, right? And being able to let the person know that they can approach you if they want to. So you're not forcing anyone to really talk about what they don't want to talk about. And there is steps that people can take. One of the things is the ALGI, which is an action plan for the mental health first aider, which stands for A is for assessing the risk of harm. L is for listening non-judgmentally. G is to give reassurance and information. And then the two E's at the end are to encourage appropriate help and to encourage self-help and other support strategies. Has this come up for you since your training? Have you had to intervene or have you had your own experience? You do mention some of this in your essay. I'm not just fishing. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you share something about you know, how you've experienced this in your, in your own life? Yeah, of course. So I've noticed that just in my general attitude of how I approach people now, I do listen non-judgmentally in a much more proactive way. I'm also able to give the reassurance. And sometimes, you know, you don't have to listen to someone just to give them a solution. Sometimes you just want to listen so that they have someone to talk to. So I kind of do a lot more of that now when I talk with, you know, my friends, colleagues, family. And I've had had to use it, not explicitly. It's not something where it's like, okay, I'm going to turn my first aid on. It's more of, becomes kind of a habit of realizing how do I assess if someone is going through some problems. And I've had people approach me or like, just come and talk to me about some problems they have. And I kind of get back into the points that I learned through this first aid course. So if someone has called me and said, oh, like I'm having these problems at work and I'm thinking of, of leaving this place or doing something else. I'm able to listen to them, give them reassurance, tell them, you know, if that they're not alone, that they may be able to talk to someone either within their workspace or outside or to their family, or if someone has had a loss as well, just listening to them and encouraging them to create a self-help plan and to get support for their own self. Well, so I, Asmi, you know, I hate to say it, but you sound like a very compassionate, open person that might be kind of easy to talk to. Thank you. I don't know why you hate to say it, but I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just, okay. But is this easier for you to do than just anybody from the lab or anybody from the building, you know, to to go take this class? Do you think that it's going to work for different people. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll work for anyone to some degree, right? So it doesn't have to take you from being, you know, a very hard to talk to, to the most sociable person ever, but it just, it's about even minor improvements. And I'm not ashamed to say that this has been a work in progress for myself, right? Like this took years of me trying to be more approachable, listening to people, being able to relate and 
empathetic towards people. And this is something that people can just work on, you know, if they're serious about. So I think it definitely will help everyone to some extent, wherever you're starting off at, it doesn't matter. You'll eventually, I think you will see improvements in your own attitude and how you can be approachable to people. Is this something that people can access from anywhere? Do they have to be, you know, in a department or in a program? The Mental Health First Aid is actually a national program, and you can go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find out where you can access it. And it is provided by licensed instructors that could be offered by different universities, campuses, organizations. So I would definitely look into it. And you can either get trained just to be a first aider, or you can get trained to be a licensed instructor, and then you can give that course to other people. Wonderful. Okay, Azmi, before we go, I just wanted to ask briefly about the kind of work that you do when you're not listening, you know, nicely to people. <laughs> so, what What is your research area? What are you working on? My research is actually not really related to this. I do molecular imaging in cardiology. So imaging in like PET SPECT scans, CT scans, and like preclinical models for cardiovascular diseases. And I try to investigate therapeutic targets for different diseases. So it's completely unrelated. And I think this does give me kind of a, like an out to have something else, a hobby that is unrelated that would help me in my own personal development, right? And that's part of the reason I put out that essay is it was actually twofold. So one is in memory of my late grandfather, who um, after he died, you know, it was a lot of grief that I had to go through and I had to deal with whose also name is Azmi. I'm named after him. So I wanted to remember him in a way and show that I'm still doing what I can to take care of myself because I knew that that would be something to him. But the other reason is also to show people an example of how you can develop your own self-care and how you helping yourself by reaching out to others is really like there shouldn't be stigma about that. You mm -hmm. should be able to reach out to people and most people will be happy to listen to you even if they're not first aiders, even if they're not professionals in that field. But it, once you feel better, you can actually be able to also help others. All right. Thank you so much, Azmi. Thank you so much, Sarah. Appreciate it. Azmi Ahmed is a postdoctoral fellow at the Yale School of Medicine. You can find a link to the essay we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Special thanks to Katie Langan for her help with the Working Life segment. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us.